having mentors that I trust to talk to, um, mentors that I feel like I can be vulnerable with, um, mentors that I can talk with about, you know, things like my stresses and anxieties, my fears, my uh, frequent imposter syndrome <laughs> moments, um, having those mentors in place to kind of help me talk through where I'm putting my time and how I'm spending my time. And if I'm doing it in a way that's useful, both to my career, but also to me personally, I think has been really advantageous and helped just kind of keep the focus on the things that I want to be focused on, which then allows me to do those things um, at least as well as I can possibly do them um, in the setting that I'm doing them in. Hey guys, welcome to Let's Talk Wiki USC. My name is Belinda Garana and I'm a PhD student in chemical engineering at USC. Wiki USC stands for Women in Chemical Engineering at USC and provides professional development, community networking, and outreach for women in chemical engineering and their supporters. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Nance. We're super excited to have her here with us today for the last episode of our first season of podcasts because she actually originally founded Women in Chemical Engineering at the University of Washington in 2016. Dr. Nance joined the University of Washington in 2015 as the first Claire Booth Luce Assistant Professor in Chemical Engineering. She received her PhD from Johns Hopkins University in Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering and Bachelor's Degree from North Carolina State University in Chemical Engineering. The Nance Lab applies disease-directed engineering to develop tools that inform how we can better treat the diseased brain using nanotechnology as both a probe and as a therapeutic delivery vehicle. Dr. Nance, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Belinda. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to our discussion. It's such a pleasure to wrap up our first season of podcasts with you. I know I just introduced you, but I also wanted to congratulate you not only on your tenure appointment, but also for receiving the Presidential Early Career Achievement in Science and Engineering Award in 2019. Can you share with us what do you think were important factors that helped you succeed in your academic endeavors? Yeah, that's a great question. And also thanks for the, the congrats. I feel like I've not actually had much of a chance to really process or celebrate um, the promotion. So I'm looking forward to doing that when uh, our quarter settles down a little bit um, and maybe when we get into the summer and back to in-person operations. Um, I think a, a really big uh, part of success in academia is figuring out first where you want to put your time and how you want to spend your time. Um, there's so many directions you can get pulled in and there's so many different things that you could do. And it's really easy to get caught up in stuff that 
you think might be useful to you or you perceive might be useful to you, but might not actually be something that you enjoy a lot. Um, and I think that there are some times in this career path where you will have to do those things. Um, but a lot of times you can, you know, find ways in which you could do the things that you enjoy the most. Um, and that's something that I think has, you know, been hard to keep uh, on pace with, like to keep kind of hold myself to, but having mentors that I trust to talk to, um, mentors that I feel like I can be vulnerable with, um, mentors that I can talk with about, you know, things like my stresses and anxieties, my fears, my uh, frequent imposter syndrome <laughs> moments, um, having those mentors in place to kind of help me talk through where I'm putting my time and how I'm spending my time. And if I'm doing it in a way that's useful, both to my career, but also to me personally, I think has been really advantageous and helped just kind of keep the focus on the things that I want to be focused on, which then allows me to do those things um, at least as well as I can possibly do them um, in the setting that I'm doing them in. And so I think that's been one of the both like lessons learned as I keep going and I'm still trying to learn that lesson and, and, and stay true to it and hold myself accountable to it, but also been um, some of the, the best advice I've gotten from the variety of mentors that I have as well. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, time management can be difficult. And um, I also wouldn't have been able to get through it without my mentors, including <laughs> you. Um, so it's really great to hear, you know, your tips and what you think. Yeah, it's, it's hard, right? Because we can get excited about a lot of different things. But sometimes the things you get excited about end up taking your energy or draining you in a way that isn't fulfilling anymore. And it can be really hard, I think, in academia, especially to walk away from those things because it can feel like a failure or it can feel like you're somehow letting yourself or letting somebody else down. Um, and so having both a way that we ourselves, as well as our mentors, like that we can have this conversation with, um, can, can help us see that it's no longer fulfilling or that it's, it's draining energy in a way that is not advantageous to us, um, I think is, is really important and something I constantly seek out in, in finding mentors as well. And I, I constantly kind of try and make sure I, I uh, assess and evaluate. And sometimes that's on, you know, a week to week basis. And other times it's on a quarter to quarter basis. It kind of depends on how things are overall feeling. Um, but it's hard because there's a lot we can do. And there's a lot of things we could enjoy doing. Uh, and then assessing, you know, do we still enjoy them? Are they giving us what we were hoping for? Are we getting out of it what we need? And if the answer to that is no, being able to walk away and not feel like you're failing or letting somebody down, it's a, it's a challenging, I think it's a challenging thought process and, and feeling process to go through. Yeah, and one thing that you actually told me that really stuck is um, you gave me permission to blame you for <laughs> saying no to certain things, so. Yeah. Empowering you to say no, I think is empowering yourself and others to say no, I think is also kind of counter to academic culture a lot of times. Um, and so it's really hard to do, especially when a power differential exists. Um, but, you know, if you're 
in a relationship with somebody, a professional relationship with somebody um, that that you can help build that capacity to say no and build that capacity to say yes to things that you want to say yes to. I think those are some of the more important and impactful relationships that you can have, particularly in academia. Um, and, and those are relationships that can exist with mentors, they can exist with supervisors or advisors, um, but having a sort of a mixture of those type of relationships, I think is really, really useful, or at least having somebody in your mentorship network that can help you figure out how to say no to things <laughs> is, is really advantageous. Like there's, there's like one type of mentor that is useful, I think, for the majority of people to have. Um, having somebody who can help you figure out how to say no, um, if that's something that an individual struggles with, which is definitely something I struggle with a lot, um, is really advantageous <laughs> to have. Yeah, um, there's definitely times in your career where you're going to have to prioritize. Um, for example, I had to decide between um, actually the NANCE lab and another group because I just didn't have enough time to do well in both groups. So right. um, with that said, I'd love to hear more about um, your career decisions and you know how you got to this point. So how did you figure out that you wanted to pursue professorship and lead a lab for interdisciplinary health research? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think sometimes my answer is a little bit surprising to people. So I did not commit to or uh, really 100% invest myself in going into a faculty position until I was about six months to a year into my postdoc. Um, and so that seems a lot really late to a lot of people. Um, I actually had a lot of interest in the social entrepreneurship space. I had a lot of interest in the nonprofit space and I had a lot of fear and a lot of imposter syndrome moments um, in what, how I could be successful or how I could potentially succeed in the academic setting. So I had fears about not being able to write grants and get money. I had fears about having ideas that anybody would be interested in including myself, um, ideas that would be interesting uh, that I could recruit students for, that I could get funding for. Um, these are all things that I was pretty concerned about. And it was something that I did have a lot of conversations with mentors uh, about, but many of those conversations were like, you'll be fine, you can do it. And that wasn't a super satisfying, I mean, I appreciated the support, but it wasn't a super satisfying set of responses um, to me. And so I found that, um, you know, when I sat down and I really thought about, okay, what do I want to be doing? What type of impact do I want to have? Fairly early on in undergrad, I realized that I really um, liked open-ended questions. I really liked mentoring students. So I did, I had some, you know, side jobs that were like hourly pay that were tutoring students. Um, I really liked that. I really liked kind of being a part of the learning process, even if I was not great at learning or felt like I wasn't great at learning. And so those were things that kind of early on in undergrad, I really enjoyed. And then I also got involved in research in undergrad um, and really enjoyed kind of the open-endedness of the research process and that it could look like a lot of different things. Like there was no one right way uh, to do research. And so those kind of experiences in undergrad really 
um, inspired me to continue kind of building or exploring those type of experiences by going to grad school, um, because that was an area that to me seemed really like the opportunity to explore an idea, you know, in an open-ended manner, kind of take a deeper dive into it, get the opportunity to mentor, to teach, still get to work with other people, um, but in a, in a very different setting than what you might do in industry. I did have an internship in industry in undergrad, and while I, I think it was a good experience to have, it, it definitely reinforced for me that that wasn't really the space that I wanted to, to be in, um, but the sort of interest in pursuing medical related research really came per, from a personal um, perspective. A lot of my members of my family um, suffer from degenerative neurological diseases, and that has been a big impact uh, in my life. It's affected a lot of people that I care about, and I was really frustrated by the fact that there really didn't seem to be a lot of options um, for them in terms of better treatment or better understanding of the disease, and so I was particularly interested and seeing if I could find a way to pursue a research uh, project or research direction that would allow me to uh, explore and understand and learn more about the brain and treating the brain and neurological disease. And so that kind of influenced my research direction. Those experiences of open-ended science, um, mentoring, kind of engaging in, you know, this community that's exploring things that are interesting you know, they might be interesting to a thousand people, they might be interested to two people. Either way, I found some of that um, kind of exciting. That all stayed with me through grad school as well. And I went into a postdoc because I did not want to rule academia out. I wasn't committed to it, but I didn't want to take it off my, uh, my potential career list. Um, and my, I had a really fantastic postdoc mentor who kind of set me down one day and she was like, look, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you'll be fine in academia or that you can do that because she was like, I know you'll be fine and I know you can do that. Um, but I, I can tell you that, you know, you can, you can go for it. And if it, if it doesn't work out, then there are a lot of other things you can do with the skills you've built during your PhD and your postdoc. And I kind of liked that approach. I was like, okay, I can give my best shot for five or six years. And if this doesn't work, there are other things that I could go do. Um, it sounds like a huge investment and a big investment of energy and time, and it is, but I mean, generally, when you're doing that for any career path, it's going to be an investment of energy and time. And it really appealed to the academic career really appealed to, you know, my interest in exploring ideas that were open ended, um, particularly ideas around ways we could better understand and treat the brain, mentoring students, teaching, um, and really, you know, having a lot of different ways that on a day to day basis. That could, that could look. So it's kind of a culmination of like a personal trajectory as well as sort of professional um, interest and in ways of spending time during the day that I think really led me to uh, pursuing that as a career. That's really interesting. And um, actually, I feel like I relate to how you had the experience of being interested in grad school after your research experiences in undergrad. So I was wondering, um, something you've shared with me before is that you were actually accepted to the MD PhD program at Johns Hopkins, but yeah. then you switched to a regular PhD program instead. So do you mind sharing why you 
decided against becoming a medical doctor? Yeah, it's, um, it's something I've actually thought quite a lot about because I do, as you know, Belinda, from many of the students that go, uh, that participate in undergrad research in our lab um, at the University of Washington, a number of them are considering going into medical school. And so it's something I, I get actually a lot of opportunity to reflect on and just thinking about what my decision-making process was. Um, and I think for me, it, you know, it, it came down to something that really sounds like a really simple, like obvious thing, but I hadn't actively thought about until again, I had a mentor who kind of uh, had a, a frank conversation with me one day and they were like, do you really actually want to directly treat people? you know, sit in a clinic, like sit in a patient's room or be in an operating room or whatever, whatever the space is going to be and, and actively be in that interaction treating people. And I was, I, you know, paused for a minute because I never actually thought about that question before. And I was like, and my answer was no, I really did not want to be in that setting personally. I did not have interest in that type of interaction space or that type of way of engaging in the medical profession or with medical, you know, research. Um, and so it actually ended up being a quite a simple, you know, realization and, and reason for why um, I didn't actually think that the MD part of the process was going to be aligned with what my, my interests were. Um, I've certainly mentored a number of students who are exactly opposite from that, right? Their, their interest is directly interaction, interacting with the patient and helping the patient real time in the scenario in their time of need. And I think that's, I think that's great. There's a lot of different ways that we can engage, you know, as individuals who are participating in, in science or engineering um, research or in science or engineering education in terms of the degrees we're getting. There's a lot of different ways we can approach the medical profession, the medical, you know, the health research and medical research needs. Um, and, and they don't all have to look the same for any one, one person. So I had this preconceived notion that I needed to get a medical degree to be able to have impact and do something in medical research. And I think that was just a little bit of, um, you know, misguided and naive approach from my point of view. I didn't have anybody in my family who had gotten a PhD. I didn't have anybody in my family who had gotten a medical degree. So I didn't have any, you know, points of reference. Um, and then in the chemical engineering department, department at NC State, which is where I went for undergrad, there also weren't any faculty at that time who had a lot of experience collaborating with or doing research with the medical profession to connect me to people to potentially even ask those questions to. And so I think I was just a little bit, you know, I had this perception of what I needed to do, but it wasn't necessarily aligned with the reality of what I could do. And it took, you know, just some additional conversations and somebody really just putting this question to me of like, do you actually want to treat people directly? And me realizing that the answer to that was no, <laughs> to realize that I could pursue medical medical impact or medical research in a way that that didn't necessitate uh, a, a, an MD in that scenario. Right. I was also originally interested in pursuing an MD or MD-PhD, but I changed my mind after getting research experience and shadowing physicians. Um, it was super impactful for me to see that you as a chemical engineering professor 
for making waves in health research. And I was even luckier to have you as a mentor too. So that's why Wiki is really important to me personally, because it felt empowering to be in a supportive community with others who want to help you succeed. Uh, yeah. So now Wiki has grown even larger and has three chapters nationwide. A lot of us have benefited from Wiki, um, but I wanted to learn more about your experience with the organization. Um, I was wondering what inspired you to found Wiki and what did you learn from the experience? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think I've gained a lot from being part of the organization from its kind of inception to seeing it grow and expand. It's definitely um, expanded the potential network of individuals that um, I get to interact with and also learn from. Um, but I was also really brought a, a, another layer to what potential community, community could be. Um, and one of the things I think that that sort of last point really hits home for me with is that when I started at the University of Washington um, in the chemical engineering department, I was the first female faculty hire in uh, quite a number of years. And there were not many female faculty within the department. There also were not, uh, we were, we were right around the national average in terms of number of women in our undergraduate, um, our undergraduate student populations, we were around 30% women. Um, and then we were right around the national average for the number of women in our graduate student population. So right around 32, actually, I think it was my a little bit lower, sorry, 28%. And um, that can feel like not a large group of people, you know, at any given time, you can, it certainly um, is less than a third of the total department uh, in terms of makeup, especially if you then incorporate the, the faculty and the fact that in, in faculty, we were underrepresented um, by a significant amount. And so I think one thing that was particularly interesting was that when I was um, in my first quarter of teaching and then moving into my second quarter of teaching, I made a lot of good connections with a lot of women in the department at the undergraduate and graduate level. And I really enjoyed meeting with those students. I really enjoyed getting to know those students. And I realized um, that there was a lot of interest and enthusiasm in kind of taking those one-on-one -on -one interactions and building them into um, more of a, a community-based um, interaction. And there were uh, some fantastic individuals at the undergrad level and at the grad level um, who were equally, I think, looking for that similar type of connection and that similar um, sort of community engagement. And so um, with that team of, of undergraduates, I think we got um, a large number of people at our first uh, interest meeting just to see what kind of the, the enthusiasm of more broadly in the department was. Um, and in that, in that interest meeting, you know, there was 45 or 50 people there. Um, it, it happened to be all women, although it wasn't exclusively, you know, uh, advertised to women. And that 40 to five, 45 to 50, you know, when you get 45 to 50 people um, that you that you can that look like you that relate to, that you can relate to in a room, it feels like a lot more than what that 30% is, right? Like it it gives you uh, immediately a sense of community. Um, that you might not get a sense of when you're looking in an individual class or an individual lab. And so I think that um, demonstrated to us immediately what the impact could be. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of enthusiasm. 
Um, and it really sort of showed that even though we were only 30% of the department, when we came together, there was a lot we could do. And there was a lot we could gain um, from coming together as a community. Um, I think from there, it's been fantastic to see the impact. There's been a lot of roles that um, women in Kimi can play so we can be uh, a source of um, volunteers and, and outreach ideas and activities and representation of chemical engineering to our larger student organizations like Society of Women Engineers and Women in Science and Engineering. Um, it gives us a point of contact for outreach activities to K through 12 schools for um, organizations that are looking to bring women to do demos or um, talk about why they chose a certain career that they chose. And we've seen the impact, um, I think in part, in large part due to Wiki, but it also due to the other efforts that this has enabled the department to do um, in our representation at the grad and undergrad level. So we're at 54% um, of our undergraduate population are women and 40% of our graduate population are women now in chemical engineering at UW. Um, that's much higher than the average we see at the college level. Um, and it's on par with what we see at the whole university level. So that's pretty awesome. You know, we've had, um, I think the opportunity to really think about what community means um, and provide a community for a number of individuals, not just, not just women, um, to say, okay, here's a, here's a space where we can bring our whole selves or we can bring who we wanna be um, into the chemical engineering realm and build connections, build relationships, build skills for the next step, um, explore careers. And that's been a lot of fun to see over the last uh, five years and then see that expand and take its own shape and form at USC and at, at UVA as well. Yeah, I've really enjoyed founding the USC chapter of Women in Chemical Engineering and you know, even transitioning to online. I feel like it's um, helped keep a community of us together supporting each other. So it's really great to have. Yeah, it's also really cool to see like what y'all have done at USC that's unique to you, right? Like there's that's also the cool thing is that there's this opportunity to adapt what that community looks like to support your own needs and to support your own, you know, goals and desires within um, your department or your university. And so that's also been really exciting um, and inspiring to see because you, you know, what you do at USC and what UVA does and what UW does, they're all kind of, they're all seeking out the same mission. Um, but the way that that mission gets carried out is you know, unique and, and adaptable based on what the local community needs are. And I think that's also been a lot of fun to really watch um, over the last uh, four to five years as well. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I've had to um, reconsider certain things because things are just different. You know, we have different proportion of grad students or undergrad. Right. Um, and it's taught me a lot about just learning about your community and how to serve it. Um, but yeah, overall, um, I'm just really honored to be a part of Wiki and, um, I hope it keeps going for future years. Yeah. I think it's awesome too. I just want to say that it's, 
you know, one of the things that I think you'll you'll get to see and your chapter members will get to see is that your your local impact can be readily multiplied, right? Like we you are one of our original members of Wiki at UW. Um, Bev Miller, who founded Wiki at UVA, was actually a, a grad recruit um, to UW for the molecular engineering program, and Wiki hosted an info session. And so she learned about Wiki there and then um, accepted the offer at, at UVA, which we were sad to we were sad to not get her at UW. But then the cool part, one of the cool things that came out of that was then that she you know, took uh, and built Wiki at UVA. And so that's, so that you can have this sort of multiplication um, impact that I think is really cool to see. So what y'all are doing now at USC is gonna have a long-term effect because you'll inspire others, you know, to build these communities um, elsewhere. And I, and I think that's a really, that's an easy thing for us to sometimes overlook, but it's a, it's a really exciting and sustainable and long-term impact that, that one individual can have, right, at a single at a single institution or a single uh, at a single location. So I think that's that's super cool. And y'all y'all have done so many great things at USC that I think you should definitely give yourselves and your um, you know your team uh, a pat on the back about that and and some high fives, uh, air high fives, elbow high fives, whatever <laughs> we're allowed to do these days. Um, <laughs> give those as well. Yeah, of course. I was blown away at our interest meeting with our attendance and um, with our industry panels um, both years so far and um, like you said the main thing that I've learned from founding Wiki USC is just the importance of believing in yourself and just asking for things because like the hardest part was just founding the organization, like taking yeah. those initial steps to go talk to people in the department about funding and getting everyone together and actually scheduling meetings. And, you know, it's just, it takes initiative and time management and it right. can be difficult. Um, but yeah, like you said, it creates a path right. for future people. So like you said, um, I, I'm sure it will benefit and I'm just happy to be a part of it. <laughs> right. So um, I also want to ask, you know, if there are any challenges that you've faced in your career and how you've stayed motivated through them. Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a hard question because there's so many different scales that challenges can take place over, right? Um, there was definitely early on, as as I've mentioned a couple of times, um, kind of the the paralyzing effect of imposter syndrome. Um, that's not to say that I don't experience imposter syndrome regularly now. I do actually, in fact, almost weekly, um, but it's less it's less um, debilitating in a way that I can't figure out how to move forward or I can't figure out how to uh, ask for help or I can't figure out how to go um, seek out mentors. So I think that's, you know, that took a long time to get to the point where I didn't see, where I, where I could see beyond um, what imposter syndrome itself was, was 
causing, you know, or, or how much it was, it was hurting me, like giving into it, how much it, it was hurting me. And so that I think has been an ongoing challenge, but one that I feel like I'm able to better manage on a regular basis. Now um, there's definitely, you know, I think a lot, a lot of challenges that will come forward that come down to having to make decisions that are neither right nor wrong. Um, and I think that it, it's something that we, we underappreciate a lot in academia, right? You could think about this in a day-to-day basis in your experiment, like the experiments that you set up or the simulations that you've run um, or the code that you're developing. Like there's a lot of decision-making that you're, that you're doing that you're kind of going off of, you know, the, what literature tells you, what maybe a supervisor's suggesting you do, what your gut instinct is. Sometimes you're just making a guess. You know, a lot of times maybe you're just making a guess, but you're, you're hoping it's a reasonably educated guess based on what information you have on hand. And I think that getting comfortable with that decision-making process, but then applying it kind of at larger and larger decisions can be particularly challenging because there's both a very individual aspect to it as well as kind of how it fits into the broader scheme of what the career you're going forward with. Or, you know, maybe if you have a, a partner or significant other that's gonna be impacted by it, um, or something like imposter syndrome is telling you that uh, there is a wrong choice to make when in fact, most of the time, it's really just one choice might be better than the other at that time. And so I think, you know, that's been a particularly interesting challenge that I'm only becoming more appreciative of is that there are, there are always going to be tough decisions to make. And many of those decisions have no right or wrong answer to them. Um, and you have to make the decision based on the information you have on hand uh, at the time that, that you're making it. And so getting comfortable with that process, with that uncertainty and that discomfort and making that decision um, I think has been a, an ongoing challenge. Notice none of these are like technical challenges. Like those you're, you come up all the time, right? Like everybody experiences challenges in classes or challenges in research or challenges in their, in their personal life. These are just kind of more overarching continuum challenges um, that I've found have been particularly things that I've initially struggled with and then learned to uh, embrace because they don't necessarily go away, but um, you still want to have ways to to try and better manage them. But then there's also, you know, making career decisions. I moved uh, all the way across country. My entire family is in North Carolina. Um, that was a very big challenge for me. I was moving to Seattle. I didn't know anybody in Seattle, no friends, no family, nobody uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that was, that was a, a challenge that I think was a hard one to kind of figure out what the long-term implications of that would be and how much it was going to impact me on a day-to-day basis and then there's challenges you know that have that have certainly come up with being still uh, underrepresented in the chemical engineering discipline um, still having power differentials that exist in academia that are somewhat arbitrary but still put you in a position where just because you're an assistant professor um, or just because you're new at something, uh, you therefore can get dismissed, or you therefore can get um, not heard in the way that you would you would necessarily want to be heard. And so, um, those kind of all still come back to sort of feeding into those two main sort of ongoing challenges, which is that decision making, kind of trusting trusting your judgment part of the process, as well as this sort of for me at least constant battle um, 
of imposter syndrome that finds its finds a way to rear its head in different ways uh, every year, it seems like. <laughs> oh my gosh, thanks for sharing that because I also really struggle with um, imposter syndrome and um, just going through grad school and thinking I was prepared for a PhD I mean, I was, but I didn't understand just how much more responsibility <laughs> there is when you're leading your research project as a PhD student. So yeah. I just I, like faced anxiety and um, like you said, there's just a lot more decision-making involved. Right. Um, so I think it's just really important that, you know, we spread the word and talk about it so that people are aware and don't feel alone in it. Right, and making, making it okay that sometimes the decision that you make, again, it's not necessarily a right or wrong decision, but it, it might not have been the best decision and that those are, those are okay experiences to have, right? Like we're all human and we're going to make decisions that aren't always the decision that would have been most optimal or taken us, you know, or, or gotten the experiment to work or, um, you know, we're, maybe we pick one career option over another. Um, these are all things that we can sometimes easily kind of beat us, beat ourselves up for, kind of associate with being failures. And I think it's helpful to, to encourage us in academia to think about failure as a natural part of a lot of what we do. And an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to redirect, but also something that um, we don't need to necessarily beat ourselves up for, right? <laughs> like it's gonna, you know, these things are gonna happen. And um, there's a lot of ways that I think in academia, we could probably preserve a lot of our mental health if we, if we redefined what failure was, or if we redefined what success was, and we thought about it more holistically and more inclusively and more equitably, um, and also not so much tied into what are typical definitions of success um, in the academic system are. And we have so many examples of people who do academia in different ways and, and do academia, you know, take an academic path in really creative and unique ways. And I think highlighting those and celebrating those and understanding that there's a lot of failure that goes into those, uh, failure how we typically would define it, I think is really um, something I would like I would like to see more of and like us to uh, embrace more of as well. Yeah, there is actually a series at the University of Washington called Fail Forward right. that I attended. I really appreciated um, professors just sharing how they have failed in the past and just normalizing that because um you know you gotta try and like it's bound to happen that you might fail right it's like the um the anti-conference what are they called like anti-symposium or anti-conferences where rather than people getting up and presenting you know all these perfect results that they present in such a way that it makes it seem like it all went seamlessly and exactly in the order that they wanted it to go in. People actually instead um, put together posters or presentations on all the things that didn't work or all the like, you know, 
simple things sometimes that can happen in lab where you look back on it later and you're like, what, what in the world was I thinking? You know, um, I love those type of things because I'm like, great, we should, em we should embrace this. You know, this is such a normal part, particularly of science and of research. But it, I mean, it's a normal part of a lot of different, uh, you know, jobs, especially when you're learning and you're training. Um, and I think that's something that, like, that, that we can embrace in a way that's constructive and and helpful and useful for our own mental health, but also just for our own, for our growth as a, as individuals and, and as a community. Yeah, totally. Um, so one last question, what yeah. advice do you have for students who are interested in academic careers? Yeah, I think um, first I would really recommend uh, trying to build a relatively diverse mentoring network and this isn't necessarily people within academia um i saw this really great article um that was actually i think it was it was published in uh science i'll, I'll send it to you belinda because i think the link is available about being intentional about who you're picking as mentors and realizing that some of the mentors who might serve you well are not going to have a ton of time so also thinking about strategy and how you approach building that mentoring network and who you're asking it for mentors um, because we often hear people say, like what I just said, which is get mentors, get diverse groups of mentors. And then it's like, okay, great, that's helpful. But then how do I do that? Um, and so I'm not going to try and, and uh, recreate what that article says on how, because they do a fantastic job of that. I'll, I'll just send you the link to maybe share um, with with your um, Wiki members and, and your audience. But I do think that having... Um, mentors who have done things differently than you, who don't necessarily w agree with you all the time, that can be really helpful just to help you continually calibrate um, and and put things and, and keep perspective on what is true to you um, and help you kind of also have people in your corner can, who can, who are really good at saying no, or who are really good at just kind of getting through to the bottom line or somebody who's really good at telling you like, actually, you just need to take a break and it's okay to do that. You know, there's so many different roles that those individuals um, can play. And so I think there's no too early of a time um, to be looking for individuals who could serve in a, a mentoring capacity. And those can be peers, those can be people younger than you. There's no hierarchy in this, um, but it's really advantageous to, to, I think, be thinking about and be proactive about. Um, and then the other thing I would just, I would uh, recommend is to get uh, as much practice as possible talking about your work, like your, what, what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Um, and both of those, I think are, the why is really, is really important. Um, so that when you get into going for a postdoc or when you get into going for uh, an academic position, you're comfortable adapting that message to the audience that you need to adapt it to. Um, and you can have these conversations, you know, with, with people you run into at, at bars or restaurants or planes or wherever you are, where there might be somebody sitting next to you for a period of time that you could strike up a conversation with. Um, but getting really comfortable with having a, a sense of what you are most excited about in your work and what you think is most important and why it's most important and why somebody else should care about it. That, that last one's particularly important for getting a faculty job. Um, I think those are really good things, again, that you can't 
start practicing too early. Like practicing those as early as possible, um, you know, is really, I think really advantageous. Um, and these are two, these are two kind of recommendations that aren't tied into the logistics of the process. Um, I actually have on our lab website, um, which again, I'm happy to share the link to some guidelines on the logistics and mechanics of getting an academic job, including my um, takeaways from the last three years of serving as uh, co-chair of our faculty search committees at UW in chemical engineering. So um, I do also have the mechanics and logistics of this process laid out. Happy to provide that information. I try and make it as transparent as possible. Um, but I think there are these other factors that start much earlier um, in grad school or even in undergrad that can really be advantageous to you when you get to that point where you've decided, okay, I am going to go for an academic career. Um, here's now how I can best leverage the skills that, that I've developed um, and the network that I have to, to really pursue that. That's wonderful advice. And it's so true that communication is so important wherever you go. Um, so yes, I'll be happy to share those links if you send them. And um, Dr. Nance, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a, it was really a pleasure and a, and a joy to, to talk with you and um, yeah, it's a, an honor to, to see um, and participate in the growth of, of the Wiki family as well. So thank you to all of the work that you've done at USC, um, as well as your, your officer team and, and your members. It's been a lot of fun to, to watch. Yeah, I've had a great team with me these last couple of years. And um, two of our officers are graduating this year. So um, I'm sad to see them go. <laughs> um, and we are looking for other officers for next year, if you're interested. Um, but where can our students listening connect with you online? Yeah, so I am uh, reluctantly on Twitter. I'm not a huge Twitter user, but I am on there as per, you know, the, the senior norm for academia. Um, I am probably most um, prominent and accessible on Instagram. So both my personal account, which is open to follow, I like to try and give um, some insights into the life of a faculty. Uh, you know, we're, we're certainly humans as well um, <laughs> and have pretty normal, uh, maybe not exciting lives, but I do have a lot of cute puppy photos um, that I put up. So that people can follow me on at Prof Nance um, or at Nance Lab on uh, Instagram and then at Prof Nance on Twitter as well. And our, our lab uh, Instagram account provides a lot of the updates on our research side of things and our, our people uh, side of things in the group as well. I'm always happy to do any follow-up conversations via, via email, um, particularly for those who are interested in going the academic path and want to kind of have a conversation of what that process looks like um, and, and want to learn more about that process so it's not a black box anymore. Awesome. To our listeners, stay tuned for our next series of podcasts starting in the fall semester. In the meantime, please send us feedback to wikiusc at gmail.com. For more information, check out our website at wikiusc.com. From all of us at Wiki, thanks for listening.